all, welcome to this podcast of our new series, Anything But Ordinary. Anything But Ordinary. You looked at me for a moment like we should have said it together. I'll try it again. Yeah. Anything, Anything But, but ordinary. ordinary. Much yeah. better. Yes. <laughs> it's a little bit of a play on words um, because we're doing it during ordinary time and a sanctified art puts out this series and I really like their resources because they care so much about the visual art and helping people reflect in all sorts of ways. Um, they don't put together scripts for services. They don't really put together a ton of preaching notes. So there's a lot of freedom to address the issues our community has or that might come up from the text, right. but a lot of resources to help supplement that conversation. Cool. Yeah, so ordinary time is kind of, Pentecost goes on forever, right? It does, yeah. And so it feels like ordinary, so it just became ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the whole Pentecost fire thing wears off after a bit, so, you know, <laughs> fire, it, become, it becomes ordinary. Burned out, yeah. It's a burned out. Yeah. And uh, the thought is going through, um, really, the Abrahamic family tree and some of the stories we might have heard as kiddos um, that are worth our revisiting because they are our stories. Yeah, one of the things I think is is important for us to keep kind of touching back to is that these are these are not just our stories as Christians, but they they had their roots in the Judaic Bible, and they're also in the Quran as part of the uh, part of the stories of the um, the Islamic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there we are joined as people of Abraham, children of Abraham. Abraham. So we'll be covering this for twelve weeks. <sighs> And we are excited. You're along for the ride with us. Hang on. Our scripture today is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Hear now these words. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar, and there he laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you will fear God, 
since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Whew. This one is a doozy, y'all. And we are going to get through it together, but I want to back us up a little bit. We are in this series, Anything But Ordinary. During the ordinary time in the summer church calendar, we're looking at the Abrahamic family tree, and we're going into these stories that we might have been taught as a kid, and we might have read, but they're often not preached from our pulpits. And if they are preached, I'm guessing it's a little bit different than how we understand things here at Chapel Hill. So we've already looked at Abraham and Sarah's visit in the desert from stranger angels that produced Isaac. And last week, Barry preached about the exile of Hagar and Ishmael. And this week, we have the binding of Isaac. To be honest with you all, this is um, the hardest text I've ever preached. It might be the hardest text any of us ever preach. Um, I have actually cried reading this text. It is horrific. Um, if you put yourself in the emotional place of this text, it is hard to get through. The stories that we are covering in this series, they hit some of the most tender places of being a person. Pregnancy, infertility, issues with parents, with siblings, with deaths, with disowning, with harm and abuse. And they aren't theoretical. They are visceral experiences of being human, and that can make it hard to talk about, right? Like today's text, this is rough, right? God does not seem like the good one here. Abraham is apparently the most passive, unfeeling human. Sarah's not even in the text. I can't even imagine what Isaac might be feeling and the lasting damage from this experience. And sitting around in this space and online, some of us know what these things feel like. Some of us here know what these feelings feel like. And we can name that, that in this text, for some of us, it gets a little closer to home than for others. And that can make it hard. But it is important for us to remember that in Genesis, all of this, these scripture stories we're going over, they are that, they are story. They are a narrative retelling of the people of Israel. They aren't even technically Israelites yet because Jacob's not even in the picture. So they're like pre-Israelite. And these stories, they take place in prehistory before we actually even start recording anything down. We have no evidence that these individuals actually lived. They do live, however, in our faith imagination, right, with the Holy Spirit guiding us to inform us 
to point us in directions, to nudge us where God would have us go. And each week during this series, we've said this, but it's important for us to remember again, our scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is written by humans. It is translated by humans. It is interpreted by humans. That's not to denigrate it. It is to say um, story and scripture, it's not supernatural, right? There's a very human element to it, and God consistently works through humans. So we have no reason to believe that God would not be working through these texts. We are not called to worship the text, however. We are called to worship God through the text. And that is an important distinction for us to make. Particularly, these oldest stories we have, they were kept fiercely by faithful, pre-literal peoples. Right? We are so fact-biased. We think fact is better than fiction. And our faith ancestors didn't think that way. They understood there was a lot of truth that could be captured in fiction. They were focused on answering the who and why questions, not the how. Right? We kind of bring our bias of the how. How did this all happen? Right? But they were thinking about the who and the why. So much like any good story, the story we have today, it helps us work out some of our stuff. Right? It helps us understand a little bit of who we are. Here is a people that had many obstacles to overcome. The first of which being a transition from the culture they had to a newer understanding, right? They were going through a cultural evolution regarding their religious and ethnic identity, their practices. They were going from polytheistic religion to a monotheistic one. In that process of learning to worship one God, right, they were evolving and they were getting rid of the practice of sacrifice. So I wanna talk about the cult of sacrifice like the start of almost all civilizations, uh, many religious practices, humans had a very sophisticated but algebraic understanding of how the world works, how God or gods work. And so in almost every ancient religious system, there was some sort of practice of sacrifice. Right? There was some sort of sacrifice happening, and in this ancient pre-Israelite time, right, this was no exception. The religions and the, and the tribes and the peoples, they had the practice of sacrifice. It was commonplace to make sacrifices of living things, of grain and plants during certain moments of hardship, during certain celebrations and festivals. This was commonplace religious practice. Now, particularly for these peoples, there's not good evidence that any human sacrifice was practiced, but these people would have understood the significance and the meaning it was much more culturally normative to have ritual sacrifices as part of their understanding. Whereas for us today, that seems like, ugh, abhorrent. These must be incredibly primitive peoples. They would have understood this in a very different way. So it's important for us to kind of keep that in our brain. So the Israelites practiced some form of sacrifice really until Moses received the law, and that kind of changed how they understood things and what that sacrifice looked like. And then when we get to like Jesus' day, who was Jewish and celebrating Jewish um, high holy days, oftentimes there would be this element of sacrifice, but it was commemorative, right? So they would sacrifice a um, Passover lamb, but it wasn't to appease God. It was to commemorate what their ancestors had done, 
Right? Does that make sense? They would, they would have a feast, they would eat it. So this practice has evolved over thousands of years and they understand it very differently, but it was normative in the first hearing of these peoples. So this journey from polytheism to monotheism, it does not happen quickly, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a religious evolution that took place over many, many years, many, many generations. These folks are trying to figure out what does it mean to worship one God? Right? What does that actually look like? That's one reason in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly these oldest stories, we have so many messengers, we have mysterious people that are kind of godlike, but not really. This was part of that evolution, right? These angels, this kind of hierarchy of being from a pantheon of gods to some sort of different understanding. We see that evolution in our stories together. If you haven't listened to the podcast that Barry and I do each week, I'd recommend it generally. <laughs> but particularly this last week, um, Barry talks a little bit about some of the sources in scripture. So there are particular, there are a bunch of sources in um, Genesis, but there are two particularly. One's older than the other. One focuses on God and uses the word Yahweh for God, which we understand to be one God. But then there's this other word, Elohim. Elohim is plural. Elohim is them. Elohim refers to a pantheon of gods. So even in our beginning of weaving these stories together, we see this evolution of a people over years and years and years moving towards understanding what does it mean to worship one God. So in a really simplistic sense, this story is one that exists within the shift of polytheism and monotheism. And they wanna process that, right? So they wanted to think through, what does this look like? What does this mean? And in order to do that, right, we need the father of our faith to consider this one God to be incredibly worthwhile. Right? This God must be so worthwhile if the man who is righteous and blameless, right, the patron, the father of a multitude of nations, would cast his eldest son into the desert last week and sacrifice his next son in order to follow what this God says. That God must be something. That God must be worthwhile. Look at what the father of a multitude of nations would do for this one powerful God. And we can see working things out through this story. They were working this out through this story. And I think sometimes folks think, well, that's really fake. That's disingenuous. What does that look like? I cannot stress how much our modern thought of fiction being somehow lesser or fake does not apply. It does not apply, right? That was not even in, in the minds of the people putting us together. These were priests and leaders in good faith, working out who they were, how we follow God over the evolution of religion over thousands of years. We believe these scriptures are inspired by God, right? And we can be guided by God and learn about God through them. Here's where I think us as Christians get it wrong, um, because today, with our relatively recent literalist understanding of scripture, we read this story a little bit different. We read this story and we think, oh, he's sacrificing his son, it's kind of just like Jesus. This must have been a precursor to Jesus dying. And I understand why we'd think that. But we also have to remember that whole other religions have the story in scripture too. 
And they don't understand Jesus to be the Messiah. So perhaps there is another meaning. Perhaps there is something else we can glean from this text. And I was able to consult with Rabbi Simone Schicker. We have shared our pulpit with her previously. She's from Temple B'nai Israel here in town. And I was curious to get a theologically progressive Jewish understanding of this text. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because as Christians, we don't preach this very often, but this is the text for Rosh Hashanah, the new year. So they preach this every single year, and they deal with this in ways uh, that we often don't have to in our Christian tradition. So Rabbi Shicker was quick to point out, hey, we don't really shy away from this text. We don't pretend like it doesn't exist because it makes us uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, (laughs) okay, (laughs) that sounds like a good idea. And really, her understanding is, uh, and her role as teacher is to, prevent, is to present a lot of questions about this text, right? Because there's a lot of things we don't have answers to. Like, I want to know, where is Sarah? What is going on? Why is Abraham so passive? Is he neutral? Is he bad? Is he the good figure? Right? How old was Isaac? She shared that um, in the rabbinic tradition, Isaac is actually supposed to be about 30, Right? So there is some understanding that he consented to this, and this was a whole different scenario. So sometimes she'll preach on that aspect. What does that mean? What does that look like if he was a grown adult? Does that matter? And another thing that uh, Rabbi Simone pointed out to me is that for them, they don't just read this text by itself, but they read this text within the entire understanding of the story this far, So really, it's kind of this, hey, God created humans, and God tested Adam and Eve, and it didn't go so well, right? So then God was like, all right, well, okay, what about Noah? God tested Noah, and Noah did pretty good, but was a little individualistic, right? Just him and his family, they made it. And then so God, God really wants to make sure that Abraham is the right one. So he tests him in all these kind of really awful ways, but then eventually we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham wants to save more than just his family, right? He wants to save people. So it's a less individualistic understanding. And she also pointed out that they have the reading into the text of um, humans' understanding of God evolving over time too, right? So not only is it an evolution of religion, it's an evolution of how people record their understanding of who God is over time. And that's a big part of sharing the story and the text. And here's where I think Christians can make use of that understanding or our reading of the Hebrew scriptures and what we will call the Old Testament. Friends, we are called to read scripture in light of knowing Jesus in our life, but we are not called to read Jesus into stories where he isn't, right? Because some bad things can happen that have led to some awful things throughout history when we just take Jesus and anachronistically put him into texts where he isn't, right? So we can read texts with our understanding of who God is through Jesus without actually making him a character or a figure not mentioned in the text. And that's really important for us in this particular time, day, and age to be thoughtful about and to consider. So you might be thinking to yourself, Jess, how do we do that? Well, guess what? We have a tool. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Some of you might be familiar with this understanding. We teach it um, in like the Chapel Hill 101 class. We teach it in confirmation. 
But we have this tool called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, and it helps us evaluate faith issues, right? And it, it can be anything from how do we understand a troubling scripture to how do we understand contemporary issues of faith. So this is the preferred version. <laughs> You'll notice it's not a quadrilateral. We've done a little work on it. Um, there was a historian called Al Albert Outler, and he really took a lot of Wesley's work and said, hey, this is how he categorizes things, and that could be helpful for us as Methodists today. And um, we do understand ourselves to be people of the book, um, but there are some traditions that would call themselves sola scriptura, only scripture. We consider ourselves prima scriptura. Scripture is prime, but we are people, and it is not the only lens which we bring to texts, just like the people writing it had lenses. So we can look at this. We understand that we have scripture as the foundation and the base for everything, but as people, we use reason, we use experience, and we use tradition to interpret events around us. Right? This, is, this is the nerdiest Methodist thing I think I've ever preached, <laughs> so thank you all. <laughs> but I think it's really helpful, okay? I'm a proponent of it. So if we're gonna isolate this particular scripture and use this tool, we can hold the story in light of what we know of Scripture, the totality of Scripture. For us who are Christians, we understand God best through Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And we can look at the stories of God over time. Is this particular one tiny snapshot view of who God is, is that in line with who we understand God to be? through Jesus Christ in Scripture, or God through the rest of the arc of Scripture, right? For me, no, I don't think God calls us to sacrifice our children and then says, just kidding. You know, like, I, I can make that determination easy. That, that makes sense to me. I think there's a point to that in the story, but I don't think that is the overall characteristic of who God is. If we take the long view, the look of the breadth of Scripture, Reason is a little bit of what I shared earlier, just what we know anthropologically, sociologically about early peoples, what that means and looks like. We understand this move from polytheism to monotheism. We kind of get that. Um, and if we also think of our experience, what does our experience of God say? Right? Does our experience of God test us to do things that we know are not really in line with God's will, God who created us and said we were very good, right? No, the answer for me is no. It might be a different answer for you. That's what's beautiful about, um, I think what's beautiful about being Methodist or within that tradition is that we have the method, but you can have a different answer, right? You can have a different interpretation. Your experience is gonna be different from mine. Your tradition might be a little different from mine. Right? Your brain's ability to reason might be different from mine, and that's okay. We have a tool, we have a method that we're able to use, and we can come together knowing there might be different understandings of what that looks like. But friends, now that we get to this point, we're here, I've kind of shared with you where I fall on this. I wanna share with you what I think we can learn, what might be scripturally edifying as we move from like the teaching portion of the sermon to is there, is there good news? Is there good news in this text? What does this text have for us today? Sometimes I get the sense we think that ancient peoples are so primitive, right? This doesn't resonate at all. This story has no bearing on us for today. And I would say plainly, that is untrue. 
And frankly, our hubris prevents us from stopping the same patterns we see in this very text. Because people, people of God, we know, we know there are families who sacrifice their children, disown their child because they think it's what God is asking them to do. Because their ideology of God is such that they cannot love their kid who is queer, who is trans. We see this happening. Right? We're, we're one of the churches that participates in the Host Homes um, initiative from out front that helps home youth who have been kicked out of their parents' houses, mostly because of their parents' religious views. Because we will worship an ideology of God rather than love the people we have near us in our family. We do the same thing. And, you know, we are... We are queer-affirming, so we might want to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we don't do that. Friends, we do. First of all, we're all connected, so we can't just claim blanket absolution of that. We worship, our, our society worships our ideology of guns more than we love our little kids. Like, this text can speak to us as to what that looks like. We have people in our lives that have not harmed us, they have not abused us, we just disagree with them. And so we cast them out and sacrifice them because we think our ideology is superior to actually loving who they are. When it's relationships, that's the way we also have through Jesus Christ, where the love of God is shown. I am personally convicted by that. Personally convicted. That is tough. That is a real word for us today. In talking about this text also in our staff meeting, we were thinking through, uh, what could a prayer station be? <laughs> Here's the scripture, ooh, what are we gonna do for a prayer station? Let alone, do you remember last week how Andrea's like, sometimes Jess and Barry just go, I don't know what you're gonna say. We did that this week, and Andrea did a great job, right? But prayer stations was that too, and um, Tanya's gonna introduce that to us later. But the question that got us started on that and that really hooked me that I think is worthwhile to share with you all is one that Barry asked. And he asked the question, what is it that binds us? What binds us? And that's another learning from this text. Every character was bound. Isaac was literally bound. But Abraham didn't even seem like he had a say. He just passively went along with everything, kind of put in this position where he felt he had to choose between this one incredible God and the key to his bloodline. He was bound. Sarah's not even in this story. And um, Rabbi Simone was sharing that within um, rabbinic tradition, they really understand, like Sarah comes back into the text and then shortly dies. Like this event broke her heart and killed her, is how they understand it. This event was so horrific even though in our scripture it does not take place, it, it broke her heart such that she could not survive it. She was bound by the patriarch, the man who had all of the power and did not have a say, such that she didn't even appear in the story of her own child. And God, humans' understanding of God in the scripture was bound in a very particular human personified way. That's how God often shows up to Abraham in a very kind of way that we can understand as a person. And God was bound to kind of do this horrible testing. Like, are you the real deal or not? I want you to prove it to me in a way that we know some humans will act. God was tested too, right? Abraham was like, hey, God, are you really going to make me go through with this? God was bound in this very human box. 
And so with this text for us this week, I mean, it's maybe a stretch to call it good news, but I think it is good news when we have to critically think and reflect upon who we are as people of faith, when we're called to think, hey, uh, where, where are the places our ideology binds us from loving people? Where are those spaces, those relationships, those places? Or where else do we get bound such that we can't see who God really is? What are the stories we tell ourselves about our role, about who God is, about what we're willing to give up? Right? What are those stories we're talking about? And can we let Jesus and community help liberate us from those bindings? Because what we can hold is that we have a God who resurrects, who brings new life out of impossible situations. And that is our story for today. Amen. Right this week in anything but ordinary, our amazing Pentecost Ordinary Time series. Jess preached the sermon on Genesis 22, The Binding of Isaac. Mm-hmm, the Binding of Isaac. It's a great sermon that took us into a lot of, a lot of history. You, you dove deep into a lot of history. Um, what did that dive do for you? Well, it was wearing two hats, which we often do, um, but like you said, there was more, uh, more teaching um, than I often do to set up kind of the context and to answer some questions, just given the nature of this particular scripture and how it has often been used in Christian thought um, to directly correlate to Jesus when I don't think that's, um, and many would say that's not the best way to read or understand this text. So um, I don't know in terms of what it did for me, you know, I was anxious for (laughs) two or three weeks leading up to this um, because it's such a, uh, it's a hard text to read. It's a hard text to have as part of our, as part of our story. And it's kind of hard to grapple with. Yeah, it really is. uh, All the characters, I mean, you know, you've got, main characters of God who shows up quite a bit in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Um, <laughs> and you've got, you, you've got um, the, the patriarch, Abraham. Sarah, matriarch, is not here, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, and has a, a presence by her absence. Yeah. Uh, and you've got Isaac and lots, lots of tradition about how old Isaac was. At lots this of point. different traditions. Yeah, yeah, and the, the scriptures largely unclear mm-hmm. except that the kid's old enough to at least uh help with the the gathering of wood yep can talk and yeah walk yeah and and we, we would imagine would have some agency mm-hmm. um and then we have these we have god all the way through and then we have the characters that are that are uh, An kind of angels of god mm-hmm. at the at the conclusion anyway um you had uh, you were able to have time with Simone, uh, uh, who is Rabbi at B'nai Israel, mm-hmm. and can you? I mean, you said some things in the sermon, but 
for you personally? Was that a was that a helpful time in terms of casting out some of your own fear? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, as I mentioned, um, particularly those in the stream of Reform Judaism, um, you know, the rabbis teach on this yearly. It is the text for Rosh Hashanah, and it's you know, in that sense, it's one of their high holy days. So they see people they don't normally see necessarily who who come to synagogue on that particular day. So. Um, understanding kind of having a wide audience uh, for whom to preach this text. That was helpful um, to talk to Rabbi Simone about and, um, you know, affirming too, I have a lot of uh, respect and I pay a lot of deference to rabbis because they speak the language, you know, and and they're just so deeply entrenched in that particular, uh, in, in those texts that, um, you know, in a way that I, I don't know Hebrew. So I'm grateful um, for her time in that. And it was, it did ease my anxiety because uh, what I was taught isn't, isn't different. You know, it's not that far off. Obviously they have a much more in-depth understanding of narrative and placing yourself in the story and having, um, having freedom about that. You know, one, one interesting point is I, I feel like I had to do some kind of backtracking and some un, unteaching around this text yeah. to say, hey, oftentimes Christians will read this and think, oh, you know, your own beloved son sacrificing him. That must be just like Jesus. So I have to do some unteaching right. in that regard, um, whereas Rabbi Simone uh, has more uh, ability um, to say, hey, where do we find ourselves in this particular text, and how is this speaking to us, and what are the different ways in which we could teach? And I think having the entire Talmudic tradition um, of rabbis interpreting what stories mean and adding some. We talked a little bit about um, the the whole concept of midrash and how that has been beautiful. And for those that are unfamiliar. Um, with as much respect as I can, I kind of describe it as like very holy fan fiction <laughs> of scripture. It's it's the taking and the weaving of narrative yeah. of what's not actually in the text, but what can we read between the lines of the text? So there's a long Jewish tradition of having freedom with these stories to kind of see where where they where they um, where they land in us. What would you say no. about that? As you were, much I more in I, that I usually I usually talk about it as stories about stories. Stories about stories, yeah. yeah. Um, and and there is that. So so we've had, um, particularly in in contemporary American Christianity, we've we've more conservative. Um, we've had this Bible as untouchable, mm-hmm. uh, and that that the Bible is what it is, and it means what it means. Uh, and we use this this word literal. I'm taking it literally, which of course is absurd because everything that we read is is. Uh, run through our mind and so in that very in that very work of going through our mind it takes interpretation but the the jewish sense about this is that uh the the story is alive Mm -hmm. and it takes on meaning in the context of every generation that reads it Mm -hmm. um and and thanks be to god for that because otherwise we would be we would be stuck with a text that uh, uh that is not good for any character within it um, but as a whole, we get this piece that we can say, okay, 
take a deep breath and what is what is the learning that I can have out of this? What does this tell me about God? And it may not be one thing it tells me about God. It may be many things it tells me about God. And it may be that 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 one of those things is that I cannot uh, pardon the expression. I cannot nail God down yeah. um, in in one moment and say this is this is this is what God was doing here, or this is what God meant here. Um, it's it's broader than that. So if we if we, if this was the only story we had about God, it would be difficult. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that I gleaned, or how I would kind of describe um, the characterization of God through the story uh, in talking with Rabbi Simone, is that they. Um, she teaches that it's a, you know, there's this whole broad spectrum and, and each story um, and each narrative of each character, you kind of see God, you know, almost through a different light of a prism, right? So we see these different, these different understandings. And um, sometimes Christians will say, well, the God of the Old Testament, which is, you know, at, at times an offensive way to refer to the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you'll notice Barry and I often say the Hebrew scriptures instead of the Old Testament, Um but the God of the old was so mean and angry and, you know, and it's kind of like, well, or is that perhaps how sometimes humans understand God and how humans wrote about God? And then for those of us that are Christians, we have this understanding of Jesus being God incarnate and an entirely different characterization of God. So I, I think that was, um, it was helpful just to hear a little bit about that and to think about really being our, our scripture, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, as light. Like if God is light shining through prisms of human experience and, mm. and getting different characteristics of that. Mm. I was staring at a prism nice. recently, so it, it hit me with the There metaphor. you go. <laughs> Got it. Did, she, did, did, did uh, Rabbi Simone say why this is a text that's used on Rosh Hashanah? No. Um, she finds it interesting. So, um, and... In other traditions, they'll have Rosh Hashanah over two days, and they use the the exile of Hagar and Ishmael as the other text used. But in the Reformed tradition, they really doubled down on the binding of Isaac, and so um, she will open that question for interpretation to um, you know to folks that are there to the congregation, like, hey, you know, why why is this text used? Because this is the new year, and it's really about celebrating the birth of creation, and yet a text from Genesis was not chosen. It is this particular text. So what might that mean for us as community? And in generally, in general, it seems like she understood her, her teaching role to really be, um, you know, not having to defend the text, not having to do a ton of interpretation, but asking interpretive questions for folks to consider or ponder. It it is fascinating. Um, Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year and, and the binding of Isaac, it's, it's ultimately a threat to the birth of of uh, what becomes Judaism, mm-hmm. um, and so to read that as this is this is what's before us is new. I mean, that's the reality of the new year. We think we're getting one thing, and there's going to be a challenge to that immediately. Yeah, well, I think too um, something that w- it was helpful for her to point out that I had never fully considered um, was that you know this this happens, this test of Abraham happens, and then nothing like it ever happens again. Right. It's not like God doesn't keep uh, testing people over human sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, so it's this interesting, as I kind of explained in the message, here's this evolution of God, God testing. And we have this concept in ancient literature of there being, um, there being someone that tests you, right? There, of there being a trickster, you know, someone that tries to test you. And in this particular instance, this character is the one God. 
you know, so big in that regard. But this this kind of test never comes up again. So it's interesting, like, okay, well, it seems like Abraham passes it. And now there's a new understanding um, and evolution between God and humans of what that looks like. Yeah. yeah. It is a fascinating piece because it's a big, It's God makes a big deal of this test. And then it seems that uh, the angel comes in to say, oh, no, no, no. And it's not a just, it's no, no, it's not no, I'm just kidding. It's no. And that seems to be uh, a narrative that uh, may well be making a commentary about the stop of sacrifice as a, um, a primary way of worshiping God. Yeah, absolutely. And then we go to law, which is a whole other set of, of sermons we'll need to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh, the, the teaching part of this, I think, was really interesting um, and necessary when dealing with this text. And obviously, I couldn't. I, I got into a lot of it, but I couldn't get into as much yeah. of it. Um, but it seems necessary to help us grapple with what it, you know, if it is not here because we literally believe this happened and it's just a retelling, like someone wrote it down because they were present, then why is it here? Hmm. And to kind of give give a, hey, here's, here's what I'm thinking, here's what some scholars think, here's what I've heard, you know, really... Um, doing my work to present that information hopefully largely coherently to the congregation was my the first goal of that message for me yeah and and it was well done and that's always the challenge um we kind of had 30 seconds in passing before we had staff meeting this morning but uh, talked about that tension that we live in between uh the the academic portion of our of our lives you know heavily trained um, in the academic world as pastors in the United Methodist tradition and um, and transforming that into a word that is um, this is the word of God for us today and it's it's motivational it, it moves us uh, in the spirit to get out and do something in response to this word an awful lot of Christian tradition has left the academic world and uh, people have had little patience with that. I think we're fortunate in the in the um, progressive church because people seem to have more patience with it. Yeah. Um, but an awful lot of a lot of faith tradition goes right to here's the Bible. I'll read it and now I'll tell you what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bert, um, the, you know, the phrase I used and something that. I say frequently and that it's clear as a pastoral team um, we're passionate about is, is bridging the gap between academy and pew um, because in many in many places like you mentioned it is wide um, and it's hard sometimes to even find language you know that will that will kind of get there um, and I don't know if, if you had this experience but I, I remember hearing from my classmates in seminary, sometimes people will be like, ah, well, don't let, you know, seminary is going <laughs> to change you. It's going to rob your love for the Lord. <laughs> like yeah. all of these, you know, did you, did oh, you yeah. hear those messages? Oh, big yeah. time. Big time. As if, um, you know, there's kind of an anti-intellectual bias in some of our churches. Um, not this one particularly. And not, I wouldn't even say necessarily the United Methodist tradition. I, I'm speaking more broadly about, um, you know, dominant, dominant Christian culture, that there's something to be feared from the academy, wherein um, I personally have found so much liberation 
in learning like, Hey, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that creation was made in seven days. And as a kid, I remember kind of feeling like a bad Christian sometimes. And we were, you know, we were kind of at church, but not really. My parents were teachers. You know, they were like, no, evolution is a thing, but I didn't, I didn't have the tools, (laughs) you know, to bridge those together. Um, and so my campus ministry and then going to seminary, I was like, Oh, I can read revelation and not be afraid. Like I read Revel, I did not read Revelation until I was twenty-two, maybe, because I was scared. Like, am I gonna have to believe this? Am I gonna have to believe that? Because I know I don't, you know. So the freedom I have found in the academy um, and those tools have helped me understand so much more about uh, the God um, I think I worship, you know, or yeah. or how we're to understand ourselves, who we really are, and the liberative power of Jesus. So I'm hopeful that that can get translated and other people find freedom in that too, that they don't feel hemmed in to believe a particular, like one, one narrative that doesn't resonate. Yeah. And not to, to go too far down the rabbit hole, but because it's, it's where we're living right now. And people are asking us a lot about the transition of the church, mm-hmm. uh, of this, of the church, capital C universal, but also of this little, significant piece of the United Methodist Church. And I think one of the things we need to watch for, folks, is that we're, um, we're losing the academy side of this. Um, uh, we, fewer and fewer churches are able to afford uh, seminary trained, and, 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 and not just seminary trained, but having gone through um, an undergraduate degree, most of our pastors have gone through a liberal arts degree, um, and then a master's of divinity. Those things matter in terms of uh, teaching up new pastors, and um, we're we're losing that. Uh, and it's a, it's a piece of Wesleyan foundation that I think I think we're we need to be mindful of. And what what is it that we're expecting in our pastors? And hopefully, there that Jess and I are showing something that's uh, that's valuable in the in the pursuit of of the academic sheepskin uh so that we no no the learning that then allows us to to read through and and bring things to bear to the scripture that matter to you in the pews yeah and i think like this week i I, we do this every week because we can't not uh you know you spend 90 hours of a degree and you hopefully you're going to use it in some way but this week for me was a very very clear example of that and that the first you know two-thirds of a message were really teaching um, as to why, like, hey, I'm not a scholar, but I learned from scholars, <laughs> and uh, I can hopefully find a way to translate that to you so that we can get to, um, or, and it can enrich our understanding of what might this mean for us today? What might we do with this story instead of just being aghast and unsure? You know, which, and there's time and space for that too, but um, that's yeah. not, our, our goal is not to leave people there, is to shepherd folks through understanding, hey, how do we how do we deal with this? How do we grapple for, with this? What, is this? what does this really mean for us today? Hopefully, um, I was able to get us there, but this particular sermon was a very clear example of that bridging academy to Pew for me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it showed and it was, yeah, it was well done. I think, I think it, it brought us to both places uh, in helpful ways. All right. What else? What else? Well, I will say um, one thing that, uh, Rabbi Simone shared with me that I didn't get to kind of work into the message was that she has some um, 
some rabbi friends who write contemporary midrashim about this particular story. So I'm actually going to write a little blurb and share that on Peachum Home, um, in case any of you are curious about what that um, what that might look like. And um, you know, I took a class where I, I took a class on Jewish thought and theology, which was really interesting, and we ended up reading quite a bit of midrash, and it was it really enriched uh, my understanding of text, and frankly, it was just fun. Um, because we, like I said, we have that kind of reactive fighting against, you know, the last really 250 years. That's really when people started reading the Bible so literally in the Christian stream. Um, but we, it had a big impact. And so instead of always the saying, no, that's, you might've heard it said, but I say to you, (laughs) um, it's fun to see. Yeah. So much, so much freedom within the text to, to have fun and to understand them in new ways, that is really, um, yeah, that really helps me take some of the heaviness off because it's a, it's preaching is humbling. It's a humbling task. It's one we undertake with a lot of humility um, because it's a huge responsibility. Um, so sometimes it's fun to just see playing with text that you don't even have to make into a work product. Yeah, and there's an awful lot of contemporary midrashim within the Jewish tradition. That's lovely stuff, and and frankly, that we've got people writing within the Christian tradition that are doing the same thing to help us, really stories within stories that help yes. us to broaden our our understanding uh, and application. And that's where the you know to bring it home. I think that's where the Holy Spirit works with our spirit to um, to to make that scripture a relevant part of those the the four legged uh, table. Or the, um, uh, what do you call it? The wacky Venn diagram. The of wacky <laughs> Venn diagram that you had on the wall. That's what it's called, the wacky yeah. Venn diagram. Yeah, that's a technical um, term. Trademark, wacky yeah. Venn diagram. <laughs> you should trademark it. Maybe write a piece about it. Oh, boy. Yeah, hey. but, but to make clear that, that scripture is, is first and comes through everything, but it is not the only thing. So tradition, yes. scripture, and, and excuse me, tradition, reason, experience all play in. That is one thing. So I, I have more. That is one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, I said to you yesterday, but I wait, feel like there's more. the most controversial thing I said was really about reading. Um, we're called to read scripture, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, in light of our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. But we are not called to read Jesus into stories where he is not. Um, that was a new concept for a lot of folks. And so I'm curious how you've dealt with that over the years or what else you might say about that because it's this interesting, delicate balance of what all of that looks like. Um, yeah. I've never said it quite that way. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I mean, what where I go repeatedly with folks is a reminder that what we call the Old Testament is the, are the Hebrew scriptures and this was the Bible that Jesus knew. Um, and that it was authoritative to him. But it was not so authoritative that he could not say, you have heard it said. Yeah. Um, it was not so authoritative that he could not tell stories within the stories and bring a new understanding of the text to those who were following him. He never called them away from Judaism, uh, he ultimately. Did he did not create the church. Mm-mm. Newsflash, folks. Jesus did not create the church. <laughs> um and uh, so, so I think I think the place uh, I go with that is that um, be humble 
in in our approach to scripture, whether they be the Hebrew scriptures or the Greek scriptures or the Aramaic uh, pieces, <laughs> pieces that are kind of woven in there. Um, be humble and just when you think you fully understand something, uh, confess that you may be wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pretty much what we do as pastors every week. We delve in and see things we've never seen before. This coming week, I'm preaching a text I can't find any record record of my ever preaching before, uh, and yet the concepts are there, and I've taught the concepts, but I'm looking at it fresh in 2023, and I'll again pray into it, and I may be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a risk. Um, that's one of the reasons why it's very humbling, because that's a risk that yeah. you know preachers have to be willing to take that hopefully can extend to the congregation. Um, I didn't really get into the why of why I feel it's kind of important um, to not particularly read Jesus back, but um, in into the Hebrew scriptures, particularly like this one, because um, there are spaces where we understand Jesus to be the Messiah. <clears throat> And there are scriptures that are prophetic that talk about the Messiah, right? So I, I don't necessarily find that as problematic, but it can get problematic when we really denigrate the Hebrew scriptures as if they don't wholly stand on their own um, as authoritative, you know, sources of scripture for other traditions, particularly in this time of anti-Semitism. And I know we care about that as a congregation, so I just want to point us to that um, that we have to be kind of thoughtful about those spaces where we have a shared tradition and overlap and how not to, um, yeah, not to solely interpret them in one particular Christocentric way to the, uh, to the detriment of anyone else. Absolutely. Uh, I think we read, we read Jesus into the Hebrew scriptures because we want to, we want to, one, be right about our yeah. understanding of oh, Jesus yeah. being Messiah. And we do that without really understanding what that meant mm -hmm. for the Jewish people and why uh, that a significant portion of, of the, the Jews at the turn, turn of the, that millennial, millennium um, were not accepting that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, they were expecting a warrior king. Mm -hmm. That's not what they got. So we go back and we read pieces like Isaiah, uh, the suffering servant chapters in, in Isaiah. And we say, see, it's right there. It's obvious. Well, few, if any, of the Jews at the time understood those, those Isaiah texts to be referring to the Messiah. They understood it to be referring to Israel itself. And they understood uh, those texts highly. They knew these texts in and out. It's not that they weren't out, familiar right. with the texts. Right. Yeah. So, we, so we as Christians go putting our, our toes in, in, uh, in Jewish waters and the Hebrew scriptures. And, and that's, 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 it's, it's not a fair way for us to deal with scripture and it's certainly not helpful to us. We do not need to do that in order to understand Christ to be uh, the presence of God in our lives and salvific in our time. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a thoughtful place for progressive Christians to go who claim Christianity and understand you know, Christ to be incarnate God without using that as a, as a weapon to hurt people and harm people like that's yeah, yeah. well it's tough it, it's we we use jesus christ mm -hmm. as you know the calling card mm -hmm. and and christ was was the greek version of the messiah language uh so it's really it's really tough um so i think i think the best thing i could say is is talk with folks who are jewish and talk about what that 
or read? What does it mean? What did it mean for uh, them, the expected Messiah? And and why was that not Jesus? Or if you want to really have some fun, go in and understand and read about why Islam understood Jesus to be a prophet, but not the uh, not the awaited Son of God. Yeah, not a divine figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, wow. that was a lot. <laughs> Much like the message, this too was a lot. Um, yeah, thanks for listening and sticking sticking in there with us um, throughout these really important texts. We are grateful. Um, and if you have anything you want to share with us, we would love to hear what that might be. We would. Until next time. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> Was that not Heaver? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'd, I'll let's, cut that. Let's, no, let's keep it. In. That's worth it. Right Vaya there. con Dios. <laughs>